From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, the fight against pollution in LA's port communities where 300,000 people, mostly Latino, live next door to oil refineries, chemical facilities, and the third largest oil field in the nation. For decades, they've been fighting for basic rights in a cleaner environment. Eliza Moreno has that story. But first, Hundreds of thousands of young immigrants brought here by their parents since 2007 are not eligible for DACA, but now they may be eligible for jobs at the University of California. Ahilan Arulanantham will explain in a minute. DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, has allowed children who grew up in the United States who had been brought to this country by undocumented parents to stay in the country legally and to avoid deportation. That policy was adopted in 2012. But if you came to the U.S. after 2007, you do not qualify for DACA. And those kids are now graduating from high school and going to college. The class of young immigrants who grew up in the United States but are not eligible for DACA is expanding at the rate of about 100,000 people every year. They can go to college in California. California offers low in-state tuition to undocumented students, but they haven't been able to get jobs on campus or elsewhere because federal law has been interpreted as prohibiting the hiring of undocumented people. But now some of the nation's top legal scholars are arguing that the law does not apply to states and that the University of California can hire undocumented students, including those who don't qualify for DACA, as research and teaching assistants and paid interns and other jobs. One of those legal scholars is Ahilan Arulanantham. He's co-director of the Center for Immigration Law and Policy at UCLA Law School. He's argued three times before the Supreme Court, most recently in 2021, on behalf of Muslim Americans who were targeted by the federal government for surveillance because of their religion. We talked about it here. Ahilan, welcome back. Always great to be with you, John. Well, tell us about the argument you and others have recently made to the University of California president. The argument is just that the, the law that prohibits the hiring of undocumented people, it's a 1986 law called IRCA, the Immigration Reform and Control Act, that law says its prohibition applies to individuals or other entities. And then it defines entities, specifically through an amendment that happened in 1996, to specify that it includes the branches of the federal government. And it does not say that it applies to state governments. And that omission really matters because there's a line of Supreme Court cases going back to before IRCA was enacted and lots and lots of cases on the subject that say that when Congress wants to regulate the states as states, not just regulating private conduct that takes place in a state, but when they want to regulate a state government, it has to do it explicitly. And that's out of deference to comedy and federalism and principles that I'm sure your audience will be very familiar with, in which the Supreme Court has paid a lot of deference to at different points over the years. Comity, C-O-M-I-T-Y, <laughs> not deference to comedy, however comical sometimes this may seem. 
That's exactly right. So the University of California, I read all 10 campuses, is the third largest employer in the state. So this really matters. It does. And it, it matters a great deal to, as you said in the introduction, the tens of thousands of students now who have a right to public education. They have a right to go to college. As you say, California has made college affordable uh, for some of them. So then all these opportunities made available to these students uh, and yet they cannot finish particularly their graduate studies because in many cases graduate studies require some form of employment in the in the context of training you've got teachers have to do a you know practical component obviously doctors and many uh, law students i know this from personal experience go and get jobs in the summer working for uh, law firms uh, nonprofits judges uh, government officials and all of those are not open to uh, this set of people, unless the state of California actually is open to them uh, as a potential employer. So our basic idea is you should, you know, the state of California should adopt this, hire the best person for the job. In many cases, that best person, that best student will be an undocumented student. And that's another opportunity the University of California should make available to this set of people. Now, I understand that you checked your reasoning about this law with other scholars in the field. And what did they tell you? Yes, we did. So this is not the way people have read the law for 30 years. So, you know, when we came across the idea, even once we did our own research and thought we were probably right, you know, we realized this is this is uh, going to be news to people. So we, we had multiple listening sessions with some of the really the most prominent uh, scholars of immigration law, constitutional law, and particularly immigration federalism, which is the sub area of um, where state policy concerning immigration is possible. I mean, they, they gave lots of sort of general comments on the argument and very detailed comments uh, allowed us to refine it in various different ways. But ultimately, nobody said, oh, you're wrong because of this provision or that case or some other thing that you've missed. And in the end, actually, now I think it's 29 scholars, uh, including the people who were in these listening sessions, have signed a letter endorsing our legal reasoning uh, that we have provided to the UC, along with the underlying legal memo, which is an extensive, lengthy document describing lots and lots of case law uh, and, and a close analysis of the text of the statute as well. And I understand that the group presenting this argument to the president's office included students as well as legal authorities. Tell us about that. Yes, I mean, the, our interest in the idea actually came first from when we started this new Center for Immigration Law and Policy now a year and a half ago at UCLA. We were put in touch with undocumented students who were describing this exact problem and telling us that in some cases they had job offers on the table from professors. Uh, so they, they know the professor said, you are the person who I want to hire to be my research assistant on this book or to be the, the teaching assistant for this class. And they couldn't take the offer uh, because they were undocumented. And so actually the, the demand for this first came from the set of students. Then we told them, we think we have this idea. We went back and researched for about a year, actually almost. And then came back to them and said, "Hey, we we think we're uh, we have this idea." Um, so yes, yeah, so so it's actually been a student campaign that was launched uh, after we told them that we did potentially have a solution to the problem that they had told us about. Uh, you know, even several months before that. 
So yes, several students have now presented this to the regents of the University of California. They did that just last week. Um, I wasn't there, unfortunately, but my understanding is it was you know, very compelling. I mean, I've met these students. Um, Jeffrey uh, Umanyam uh, Muniz, I think, was the, the student who was speaking this time. Uh, Paralia Maya, um, Abraham Cruz Hernandez, uh, Carlos Alarcón. And these are the, the, the some of the student leaders from this. They're incredibly impressive people. I mean, they're just very articulate, really smart, obviously really good students, and I think are very good at articulating the basic demand, which is just, I want to have equal educational opportunities. You told me I could come to the school. You have all these services available to undocumented students, and yet now I'm hitting a glass ceiling. There's an obvious question here. You say this law has been in effect for 30 years. How come you only figured this out now? I mean, I went and looked <laughs> up the law, 8 U.S. Code, <laughs> Paragraph 1324A, it says it applies to a person or any branch of the federal government. That's pretty clear. I know, I know. It's a little embarrassing. <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> I guess I would just say two things on this. You know, law is funny. And sometimes everybody assumes something and and nobody kind of really looks carefully until they do. And you know, lot, lots of things have been like that. I mean, DACA, uh, the, the DREAM Act was introduced in the year 2000 um, first. Uh, the idea for DACA only came a, a little bit, I think, more than 10 years after that. And then once somebody had thought of it and put it down, it seemed like the most obvious thing in the world. Uh, yet it, it could have been done a decade earlier, and it wasn't. And this feels like one of those things. Uh, I mean, there's lots of other technical examples I could give you like that, you know, like sort of nobody thought about it until just one day the light bulb went on. And then, you know, I just was like, oh, um, you know, the other thing I would say about it is I think people have thought about states' rights arguments in general as more tools for, um, you know, the right uh, for sort of advancing um, ideas that are opposed to civil rights, which makes sense, obviously, because there's been so much states' rights opposition to, you know, race discrimination and gender discrimination and uh, fair labor standards and other ideas like that going back a long way. And so although I think there have been, there've been certainly strands of states' rights as pro-immigrants' rights ideas, here and there for a long time, including in-state tuition, which I think was 2001, if I if I remember right, so it was very old, AB 540. The idea that immigrants' rights advocates would look deeply to states' rights ideas as a way to advance the cause is more recent. And then I think the last thing I would say is this is not a solution, obviously, to the risk that DACA may end because many DACA holders are employed in the private market, and so. Yes, California, the, the, the UC, the third largest employer, but still there's huge, obviously, employment opportunities in the private market that would not be fixed by adopting this idea. And yet I think also, nonetheless, that the, the impending uh, potential demise of DACA did spur a lot of thinking. I and mean, that's actually how I, in particular, researched this exact question as I was in the transition to the Biden administration, had been asked to look at some potential administrative relief proposals that the Biden administration might put in place in the event that DACA goes down or the other things that could be done along those lines. And that was kind of what spurred me to be hunting through this this particular area of law. 
It seems like this is consistent with a lot of other things that the state of California has been doing with undocumented people. We mentioned in-state tuition. You just mentioned California issues driver's licenses to all residents, regardless of immigration status. California also recently became the first state to offer state-funded health care to all low-income people, regardless of immigration status. So this is sort of part of that whole move that the legislature has made over, as you say, more than a decade. Um, and I, I would add one thing, um, John, to your list, which is occupational licenses have been open, um, I believe, either all or virtually all to people regardless of immigration status. So you can be a lawyer. And there are. There are very good undocumented lawyers. You can be a doctor. You can be an accountant and all kinds of other jobs like that. The argument that you're making doesn't just apply to California. It applies to all states, all the other 49, doesn't it? You're right. There's there's nothing. If our theory is correct, then the law already, as currently written, leaves the question of who the state should hire to work for itself to the states. And so it means that states are already free to make their own judgments about who they should hire from everything from the highest government positions, where it makes a lot of sense from a federalism perspective. California gets to decide who should be a governor or who should be a judge or who should be, you know, certain other officials like that, state assembly uh, member. In our view, all the way right down, because of the way the statute is written, to who should be hired to be a research assistant in the University of California or California State University. And RBS, the same is true for every state in the union. Where do we stand on this proposal right now? I know it's been presented to the president. You say it was just presented to the regents. Have you gotten any response yet? Only that they're looking at it carefully. And I say that was a little bit of disappointment in my voice. So you say that 29 legal authorities all agreed with your reasoning here. Of course, there are some people who disagree with this interpretation of the law. And presumably, if the regents approve this, and if it goes into effect at the University of California, the opposition, let's call them Republicans, will take action. What are the next steps, assuming this is approved? I mean, I think it would be technically easy to change this law by amending IRCA and explicitly stating that it applies to state governments. And that's what happened with a number of canonical federal statutes, which now do apply to states, Title VII, uh, the Fair Labor Standards Act, the FMLA, the ADA, and lots of others. But to do that, I would hope that somebody uh, on the other side of Congress might say, sure, we, we can we can amend IRCA as soon as we pass the DREAM Act and the Promise Act and <laughs> fix the other thousand extremely irrational and uh, and also extremely harmful immigration policies that have no one has been able to fix you know through immigration legislation a very long time. So my sense is that the 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 political quote unquote fix that would eliminate uh, the efficacy of this proposal, I would think would get thrown in the mix of so much of other federal immigration legislation, which has obviously been stalled for the most part uh, going back a number of years. As far as litigation goes, I mean, it might, because obviously many pro-immigrant policies, particularly those enacted by the Biden administration, have been the subject of, of lawsuits, uh, primarily by Republican-led states, is what I'm thinking of anyway. 
I would think it's hard for them to show that the UC hiring its own students somehow harms, say, the state of Texas in a way that would be sufficient to produce injury to satisfy the Article Three standing requirement. Um, even a very, very broad understanding, like those that they have adopted, and which the Supreme Court is now actually going to be considering next term in their challenge to the federal prosecutorial discretion guidelines um, in that litigation, even that very broad understanding, it doesn't seem to me stretches broadly enough to claim that somehow they'd be harmed by the UC hiring its own students or California in general, choosing to hire, you know, open open all of its jobs up to the best applicant, regardless of immigration status. I mean, why that would cause any kind of injury to Texas or some other state really would is a mystery to me. So my hope would be that it would be hard for such a litigation to go forward. Um, you know, as other litigation could potentially happen, you know, I, I really do believe we have the better argument, the much better argument, actually. Um, so I would hope that that if somehow somebody could get into court over this, which I do think would be a stretch, but if somebody somehow could do it, that hopefully a court would see it our way. The New York Times article on your argument quoted the director of border security for the Conservative Heritage Foundation. They said, work opportunity is the number one pull factor of illegal immigration, and that's why this is a bad idea. That's not exactly a legal argument. It really isn't. You know, I, I actually have not heard a careful legal analysis that answers the basic argument. I mean, that, yeah, obviously that's just a policy argument. And that's my point would be like, yeah, maybe some states think that they don't have to do it. But the states that see it another way, the states that like California think, well, you know, we've got 40,000 undocumented students in higher education uh, who are not eligible for DACA. And we think that that actually providing them uh, equal educational opportunities is a good thing. And if that causes uh, more people to come to California, that's great then they can work here and live with their families too. They can work here and live with their families. Ahilan Arulanantham, he's co-director of the Center for Immigration Law and Policy at UCLA. Ahilan, thanks for talking with us today. Great to talk to you, John. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Now it's time to talk about the fight against air pollution in the port communities of Los Angeles, where 300,000 people, mostly Latino, live next door to oil refineries, chemical facilities, and one of the largest oil fields in the nation. For decades, they've been fighting for basic rights and a cleaner environment. Eliza Moreno has that story. She's a writer on race, gender, and environmental issues who earned a BA from Duke and an MA from Stanford her new piece for thenation.com is These Moms Are Leading the Fight Against Environmental Racism. We reached her today in Los Angeles. Liza Moreno, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, John. Well, you open your report for The Nation with a story about an explosion in a South Bay neighborhood of Los Angeles in 1969. Tell us about that. Jesse Marquez, he was just a teenager when this explosion impacted him and his family. At the time he was living in Carson, neighbor to Wilmington, California. 
four tanks of oil in the Fletcher Oil and Refinery plant had exploded, and it was stationed right across from Jesse's family home. The explosion resulted in first, second, and third degree burns. Due to this explosion, Jesse realized the importance of advocating for his community. He moved to Wilmington later on in his life and founded the organization Coalition for a Safe Environment and has served as its executive director since founding it. And tell us a little more about Coalition for a Safe Environment, uh, what their work has been. The organization works to hold oil refineries and other institutions accountable, those that are um, directly impacting the health and the lives of those in the neighborhood of Wilmington. The Coalition for a Safe Environment does a lot of work, but which involves making sure that the Assembly Bill AB 617, um, which is the most recent and major bill signed by Governor Brown in 2017. And so the purpose of AB 617 is to reduce exposure in communities most impacted by air pollution. And in 2018, the Wilmington Carson West Long Beach community was nominated by the district and selected as a monitoring community. Jesse is appointed to this AB 617 advisory committee. And so his organization ensures that they are keeping in mind all those most impacted. So how come people live next door to oil fields and oil refineries in LA County? What, what is the history of this? So in terms of the history of big oil in Wilmington and the LA area, it all began in the early 1900s. It was you know, largely to this big oil that spurred a lot of economic growth in the region. Um, and so the Chevron El Segundo refinery has been in that area since 1911, for example. Um, and Union Oil opened its first refinery in Wilmington specifically in 1919. And so just throughout um, the 1900s, due to big oil impacting economic growth, people followed. And as a result, these communities have been building, but over time, due to the health impacts, the majority of the folks who are living in the area, a very inexpensive area to live in compared to West LA counterparts, are Latino and immigrant families who can only afford living in these areas. Um, and I spoke with members of the community, um, including Dulce, who I, is highlighted in the piece, as well as her daughter. And um, Dulce plans on staying in Wilmington. This for her is her dream is to continue to advocate for her neighbors and for her family and for herself. Whereas her daughter who has two daughters of her own, her dream is to leave the area once she and her family have the economic means to. So let's talk here about the, the health issues of people who live in these uh, neighborhoods uh, across the street from uh, oil refineries and oil storage uh, depots. This is sort of right behind the ports of LA and Long Beach, which bring in basically everything from China that comes to the United States, comes to the port of LA and Long Beach. And as a result, lots of pollution builds up and is directly impacting the folks who reside in these areas. There's this crisis of asthma cases in this area, especially the children in the area. Asthma rates are especially high in communities of color. 
And this is also the case for the predominantly Latino communities in Wilmington. On top of asthma impacting um, so many children in the region, research also suggests there is a correlation between pollution and eczema because the toxic chemicals in the air trigger eczema, damaging the skin. And so the children of Dulce, um, Freddie being one of them, he is impacted greatly by eczema, as well as Dulce's granddaughter herself. I will add on top of all of these health issues, Latinos are greatly uninsured compared to their white counterparts. For example, um, 20% of Latinos nationwide are considered to be uninsured. And this lack of health insurance results in these communities being unwilling to go to the doctor for checkups, you know, including cancer screenings, which are actually highly recommended for those who live even within 30 miles of the region. And Dulce lives within one mile of an oil refinery. So because she does not have health insurance in the U.S., she relies on her family in Mexico to bring her the medication to help with the eczema for her children. So the air pollution comes from the oil refineries. It comes from the huge number of trucks that are going back and forth to the harbor. And it also comes from the ships that are in the harbor. I did not know until I read your article in The Nation that Governor Gavin Newsom had canceled the requirement that ships in L.A. Harbor use shore power when they're in the harbor. That means electricity instead of running their diesel engines. In September 2020, Gavin Newsom canceled that requirement. Tell us about that. Why did he do it? Governor Newsom halted the order intending to free up electricity in California because the state was experiencing extreme heat and raging wildfires. And so in order to prevent, you know, further blackouts or electricity shortages due to the electricity that we as residents use up, in addition to the wildfires, of course, um, the order was intended to um, free up the electricity. This resulted in cargo ships to stop using shore power. And shore power is meant to reduce pollution. Ships are one of the heaviest polluters in the seaborne trade, accounting for about half of all port-related pollution. And little is known of this order in other coastal California cities, but for residents in Wilmington, halting shore power results in even a greater amount of pollution directly impacting these residents. So we've talked a lot about the health problems. Let's talk about the organizations now that have been fighting to change this situation. I was especially interested that In Wilmington, there's a chapter of Communities for a Better Environment, CBE, which is a very big and important uh, nonprofit that fights for environmental justice. Uh, Tell us a little about CBE in their Wilmington chapter and this fascinating person you profiled in the nation, Alicia Rivera. Communities for a Better Environment, specifically their chapter in Wilmington, is intended to support the fight for environmental justice. I spoke with Alicia Rivera, who is a Wilmington community organizer at this organization. This means that she is out on the streets, she's in the schools, she's in the churches of Wilmington, 
talking, leafleting, trying to speak to as many residents as she can, um, informing them about these refinery issues, inviting them to meetings. In fact, Communities for a Better Environment was the organization that informed Dulce about these issues. And thus Dulce is now an advocate in her own right as a community member. So just to give you an example of the breadth of Communities for a Better Environment and the impact they're directly having on their residents. And I spoke with Alicia who mentioned that in her conversations with um, residents, they do have an idea that the oil refineries that sit right next to their homes, they do have an impact on their health. And um, I understand that the local organizers told you that uh, they've had opposition, not just from the refineries, but from the YMCA, the Boys and Girls Club, even the local Catholic churches and local schools have not really welcomed the organizers uh, and and their their work. Why is that? These are low-resourced communities, and they do not have the resources to continue a lot of the work that they're hoping to push forward. And so this is when the funding from the refineries comes in. And so the refineries are well aware of the impact that they're having on the community. Um, a lot of detrimental health impacts. However, in order to continue their operations without too much controversy or frustration by the community, the refineries provide a lot of funding to these schools, to these libraries, and to the churches. They donate money to the reading programs in the library alongside other community events. And so the libraries and the schools, even the churches, are placed in a very difficult position where they require the funding from the refineries in order to do the work that they want to do for the community, right, um, in order to hold these community events and these reading programs for the children in the region. But in order to do so, this means that they will have to turn away organizers like Alicia because it's part of this unspoken contract they have with these refineries. I noticed that Alicia Rivera told you that the people who attend the meetings are all mothers. That's right. This could be for many reasons. One of them being that in these communities, traditional displays of gender are enacted, which is men are primarily the breadwinners and the mothers are the ones who work the odd jobs here and there and have the time and space to volunteer. However, I think it also has to do with the fact that these mothers are directly responsible for taking care of the children in their household, for their husbands, for themselves. They are the ones who are taking care of the health of their family. They are the ones who are directly witnessing the impacts that these refineries are causing in the bodies of their children and themselves. And so they want to take action. They are being placed in a position where they must be advocates, not because they want to, but because they have to. And so they want to know what's going on in their community. They want to know why it is that their children have eczema or asthma, and they want to do what they can to fight for a better life for their family. 
Eliza Moreno. She wrote about people in California's low-income communities of color organizing to prevent and reduce air pollution, especially around the ports of L.A. and Long Beach. You can read her report, These Moms Are Leading the Fight Against Environmental Racism, at thenation.com. And this piece was co-produced in collaboration with The Margin. Eliza, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. William Broughton is our audio editor. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.